Hi, this is Greg Smythe, host of The Leap, the podcast about interesting people who have taken personal or professional risks. This is of interest to me since making a leap of my own from the oil and gas industry to the technology industry in Silicon Valley. Through these series of interviews, I want to talk to people that have taken a personal risk, understand their motivations and how they executed their plans with the goal of helping listeners find the courage and inspiration to make a leap of their own. Today on the podcast is Jill Langer, originally from St. John's, Newfoundland and currently living in Oakland, California. I'm really excited to learn more about Jill's impressive educational background and the unique career choices she's made along the way. I'm also keen to understand how growing up in Newfoundland has shaped her perspectives and choices she's made as well. Jill graduated from Memorial University with a mechanical engineering degree in 2009. She then went on to study as a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford, where she completed a master's in the social science of the internet, as well as an MBA. Jill has worked in a variety of diverse companies here in Silicon Valley, including management consulting, a drone startup called Lilly, and is now working with the autonomous driving company, Cruise Automation. And in addition to all of that, uh, like many people in Silicon Valley, Jill has a side passion project, which is garment pattern making which, believe it or not, has close ties to our background in engineering and mathematics. As typical townies, Jill and I go way back. We went to Gonzaga High School together. She also studied mechanical engineering with my wife, Amanda, and we've been close friends ever since they graduated together. Now that my wife and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, we get to see Jill and her fiance, Ross, frequently. So Jill, welcome to the show. My first main question is, do you think there was an advantage to growing up in Newfoundland? And from that, what lessons have you carried with you in your life? I don't really think it's just a stereotype. People in Newfoundland are kind and caring, and there's a sense of community there. And I think growing up in a tight-knit community where people help each other and, you know, it's you're an asshole if you don't say hi to someone when you walk down the street, like that kind of um, way of behaving and interacting with other people, even if you don't necessarily know them is something that I think has been shaped by growing up in Newfoundland for sure. Yeah. I think that's true. Even when you go to big cities, it can tend to get cold, but it's nice to have that comfort and people, it catches people off guard sometimes when you're kind to strangers, even at work and other things. I think people are not, don't expect it. Or even when Newfoundlanders come here to like San Francisco or the area, like, like new, the Newfoundland group tends to get together and welcome them or to include them. Like, I don't think a lot of other communities are, are kind of like that. So moving on to your university experience and fast forwarding a little to your career, I'm really curious because I find that a lot of the roles that I've had are not typical engineering design or calculations based jobs. So as a trained mechanical engineer, how do you use those skills you learned at MUN and apply them to your current job? So I also don't have, you know, your stereotypical engineering yeah, job. Design I'm not, type job yeah. yeah, I'm not designing things. I'm not using MATLAB all day. I'm yeah. working with a lot of people who are in formal engineering roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think regardless of where you end up, having formal training as an engineer is very helpful yeah. in terms of, it's not like you can't learn this through another discipline, but engineering teaches you a methodology for solving problems, yeah. stating your assumptions, you know, taking an iterative approach, kind of like it's that kind of applied. The of like uh, the scientific method or exactly. following structure problem solving. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That applied methodology, I think, is is extremely useful, especially in a fast paced tech environment where yeah. 
you know, every day we're solving some kind of new problem. And yeah. in my role, especially being able to speak the language yeah. of engineering, um, given that I work with um, a large, a large portion of the people I work with are, are in kind of formal engineering roles, whether that's computer engineering or mechanical engineering. I work with people from all sorts of disciplines and yeah. I do find that it is, uh, you know, a helpful set of experience in the role that I'm currently doing now. Graduated from mechanical engineering in 2009. Then you went on to win the Rhodes Scholarship, which gave you the opportunity to attend one of the most famous universities in the world uh, at the University of Oxford in England. And I guess so some people may not know, but Danny Williams, kind of one of the most famous, successful Newfoundlanders, won the same scholarship, and so did the U.S. President Bill Clinton. Many people might not know much about the scholarship. Do you mind telling us about it? Sure. Yeah. It's a scholarship program that was founded by a guy named Cecil Rhodes. He funded through his will a number of scholarships from various countries, originally from the Commonwealth right. countries, to go study at his alma mater, which is the University of Oxford yep. um, in the UK. And so it's a full scholarship for graduate studies. I guess what, what made you apply? First of all, like what, what trait was there a reason or someone who encouraged you to do so, or is it something you'd always thought about doing? Oh, I certainly didn't always think about doing it. I didn't really know about the Rose scholarship until right. I was in university for sure. I was interested in pursuing graduate studies partially because, you know, I didn't feel like I was done with school at the end yeah. of my engineering degree, but also because I kind of wanted to ex explore and I, yeah. I didn't quite know exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't really, so I'm feeling super enthusiastic about like jumping into a job right away. And yeah. so I was looking for um, funding opportunities and that was one like of the really kind of, one. exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, can and, you tell me, I guess, tell me about the, like going to Oxford, like probably the most famous university in the world, like how intimidating was it going there for the first time? Like the first couple of weeks or like the thoughts about, did you do your MBA first? Or do you do the your master's in social science, I guess, first? I did. Um, I studied at the Internet Institute for right. a year. And then I, I went on to do an MBA at the right. business school at Oxford. But, yeah, it's extremely intimidating. Yeah. And I don't know. I think that a lot of people can relate to the, the idea of imposter syndrome, where you feel like you yeah. don't belong and you tricked someone into into the situation. I, I definitely felt like that in a big way for a significant portion of time. Looking back, though, should you have been intimidated? Because I think we felt the same. Like, when we moved out here, like, working for these big tech companies can be very intimidating. Or even working with people that went to, you know, Stanford or Harvard Business School, all these things can be super intimidating. Mm -hmm. But, like, once you get used to it a year or two later, it kind of just fades away. And it seems silly in hindsight, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, it was like when I was interviewing and trying to get a job, it was like, it was super scary. Um, and you were, there is that superiority complex totally, or something. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think if I were to kind of step outside myself for a minute and imagine my sister or my friend yeah. or someone that I care about in a similar position, going off and doing something a little bit scary outside their comfort zone, like the advice I, I'd give them, it's like so counterintuitive because how you feel yourself in that situation is just like scared or terrified or I can't do it. But yeah. of course you see your very capable person that you love and care about. And you're like, of course you can do it. Yeah. Right. Like right. I think trying to step outside yourself and see the opportunity for what it is, yeah. whatever opportunity you're talking about. 
you know, the, the people on the other side of the table at, at, you know, on a scary interview panel or, you know, on the other side of the classroom in a room full of like, you know, quote unquote, really smart people. They're just people. They have experiences just like you and they have fears and insecurities. Exactly. You know? And so I think that what I wish, like in some of the university students that might listen to that is it's taken me probably 10 years to figure that out. You don't need to be intimidated by a lot of other people in those circumstances, but and people are just human, but it takes a long time to learn that. And if people can skip that step, it would, it would be it'd be good. Well, you know, one of the things I realized at Oxford, you know, it took a while to come out, you know, when you first get started and you're, you know, the new batch of students, you find out like around, you know, Christmas time, a few months into the year, everyone's feeling the exact same way. Yeah. Right. And right. so you're not exactly having a unique experience. And when you're spending all your time wondering how other people are thinking about you, they're just thinking about themselves. Right. So I think the, the advice I'd give is to just, you know, don't take yourself too seriously and don't worry too much about what other people think. Yeah. That's right. That's very good advice. Before we go kind of on to your career, what made you interested in technology? So obviously you mm. studied the internet at Oxford <laughs> And then chose to move to Silicon Valley or to San Francisco area. What intrigued you about that to come here? And then you've been here for almost 10 years. I'd say the thread that has run through all of my experiences, you know, from engineering through to today, I've done lots of things that make a lot of sense to me, but maybe it's not necessarily a traditional career trajectory. I was super involved with an organization and university called Engineers Without Borders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their mission statement was technology can drive extraordinary change. And I spent a lot of time through that organization thinking about what is the social impact of technology? Does technology drive change? Do people drive change? How, how can you use technology to actually better the world? Um, And sometimes when you think technology is being used to better the world, it actually creates negative and unintended consequences. So thinking about technology in the context of society is kind of what I find especially interesting. And um, it's cool to be actually working at a company now that's that's creating kind of cutting edge technology that will change the world. And so seeing how that actually manifests on a day to day basis is actually super fascinating to me yeah it is like especially the uncertainty of it like we had worked in the oil and gas industry before and there's this like i mean the scale and the complexity of different projects were different but it was really doing uh the same thing like kind of over and over again in a way mm-hmm. but here like in in general piece people are trying to do things that have never been done before in some way and there's a lot of uncertainty based around that but there's a lot of excitement to to yeah. be on that kind of journey so Jill, can you tell us the story about like kind of moving to San Francisco and can you tell the story about find, maybe finding your first job and what that journey was like? So yeah, I definitely wasn't the super organized person that has a job lined up before you go somewhere. That was, that's kind of not my style for better or for worse. It, it creates extra stress probably, but yeah. um, you know, I was finishing up my studies at Oxford and hadn't really done any job hunting whatsoever, but i I had been out here to visit some friends of mine from Newfoundland, actually, who studied engineering at Mun with me. Fell in love with San Francisco. Okay. Something about like the energy and the people and like the beauty of the city um, and the weather. Weather, yeah. I totally fell in love with it. And I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to move here. And so it was less about 
wanting to move for a particular job. And it was more about just wanting to move here and kind of find, find the job. So I came here, um, as a tourist and I ended up finding an internship at a company called SY partners that, um, they're a boutique management consulting firm that works with companies when they're trying to kind of reinvent themselves. So it was actually sort of ironic that I ended up at a place like this that was all about, you know, crafting a new identity and all this. But anyway, this, this is the first, the first job that I got out here. It wasn't really the perfect job, but the best advice that I got from anyone who said, you know what, Jillian, you're not actually, don't stress about getting the right job. Yeah. You're optimizing for like three years out. Just make sure you're going in the right direction. Yeah. Right. Don't stress about not having everything worked out and having everything um, perfect. And I always that's a good thought that's actually, especially for like good advice intern, like in getting the perfect internship or the perfect company or something. And just, it un, it, it's unlikely to happen too. Yeah. And so I, even like, I find a lot of people like reach out to us, like they're like, they want to work for the big companies, the Apple, Googles and, and Tesla's. But I tell them like, there's like thousands of companies. And if you really want to come work in the industry and you're going to stay for a while, just get something and then you can kind of figure it out. You either like it or you won't, or you can, and there'll be plenty of opportunity to change in the future. Exactly. Not being too precious about, you know, the things that might, or the jobs that might look perfect and shiny from the outside. Nothing is, is going to be exactly how you think it's going to be. Yeah. Um, how did you actually get your first job? Like, how did you meet the person? I was definitely on the LinkedIn train. That's what you were using to, okay. Oh yeah. Hardcore. Right. Um, LinkedIn was, and actually, um, I don't know how appropriate it is to do this, um, but I did a lot of cold emailing of people and I've actually gotten a few jobs that way. And I would do that on LinkedIn, find somebody who worked at the company and just ask to go for coffee or just network with people that, you know, it's actually surprising how big your network is just one person who can introduce you to someone else. But I think the most important thing is don't just come in with like an open ended question. Like I'm interested in technology. That's not helpful to anybody because the people you're asking for, you're asking for people's time, you're asking for people's attention and people are generally really willing to help you. right? Right. So if you can give them a one or two sentence tight encapsulation of what it is you're looking for, I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. And my target job is at this company. They can, they can use that to be like, huh, who do I know working on X, Y, and Z or at that company? And then you're more likely to get kind of a more to, to actually find more success in your networking when you have a targeted approach. I think when we first started looking like that was like the, the blanket emails or like we did a lot of it through like in mail through LinkedIn Mm -hmm. and the more specific you were, the better. Right. So like when I applied for a certain job and then I went to look for people with the same job title and said, like, I'm really interested. I think I'm, I'm super qualified to do the job that you're doing. I'm really interested. Can we just like talk for 20 minutes about what your job is like? Um, like what qualifications I might need or something like that. And people were like almost always responsive to like something specific to either their skills or their, their job. And like, and then also if there's some common interest, like it can like reaching out to a Canadian or someone that went to the same university mm-hmm. you did, uh, always kind of helps with that too. Totally. So you worked at Lily Robotics, yep. uh, a drone startup. Can you tell us how you transitioned to that very like robotics company startup very early stage, right? I don't know how many, what employee number you were, but how did you get in uh, to that opportunity? Yeah. I, I forget how many people we were at the time. I think it was less than 30 people. 
Uh, but uh, one of my classmates in business school was the head of marketing at the company. And so they were looking for somebody to help, you know, in a product role. And so I, I kind of got hired as the, the first and sort of only person in that function. Um, what were, so what, what does a product designer do for like a drone startup? Like what kind of, I know you were working on like the instruction manual one mm -hmm, day when mm -hmm. we, we visited your work, but like what kind of, what was part of your main part of your job there? You know, as a product manager at Lilly, my main job, and, and I guess as a, just a little bit of context, Lilly Robotics, the, the founders created this demo video uh, of, a, of a drone that follows you around, a camera drone. Right. And so you don't have to pilot it. That was kind of the big value proposition. Yeah. And we ended up raising, this is before I joined the company, $30 million in a very short amount of time right. from people who wanted to pre-order this device that did not exist. Right. It was just an idea. You know, right. There was a prototype, but that's about it. Right. And so um, the company got a Series A round and... When I joined, we didn't have a product spec. We didn't really, we didn't have any idea of how does a person interact with this device? How do you turn it on? What do the, what do the buttons do? How do you actually get it to take off? So that whole user interface did not exist. So I did a bunch of different kinds of things at the company, but everything from doing user research with our beta testers, designing the you know out of the box experience, because we had actually did, remember I flew it that yeah. day and like we kind of walked through the app and like what, what are the common like pitfalls or what confused me and stuff. But it was mm -hmm. really interesting to see like kind of an early, were, early product. You were our best user research. You were, you were our best user. <laughs> that was like super, subject. that was like one of the most exciting. That was just when we moved here and I was like, uh, I get to like uh, review pre-ordered prototype uh, drone technology. So it was, it was more exciting for me than you maybe, but. You're one of the only people who has seen that device. <laughs> so, so I guess that leads to the next question. So the startup did not work out nope. and they never did ship, ship the product. I guess two questions, like what did you learn in that experience? And like, I guess, why do you think it, it didn't work out? Okay. So I'll start with the latter. Um, why it didn't work out. Um, Lily ran out of money in a nutshell. You know, we yep. just didn't make a product in time. In my opinion, they're trying to sell a product that was, very complicated. It was meant yeah. to be waterproof. It was following you around. It had to have, a, you know, a high degree of precision, um, which using GPS, if anyone has, who's maybe listening, um, worked with GPS, it's not really that, that precise. And yeah. so I don't know, there was a, many complications that we ran into. I think the idea was simple probably, or the concept but the execution of it was extremely difficult, I imagine. Exactly. But what I learned from it is to have, a sort of ruthless sense of prioritization. And so we did not prioritize well enough, I don't think. So taking that sense of, you know, in, in sort of tech jargon, an MVP or a minimum viable product, focusing on like, what actually do you need in order to ship a feature and to start learning something from your customers? Right. Um, and I think the thing that, that has stuck with me is if, if you're not embarrassed of what you're shipping, mm. you know, in the early days when you're trying to find that product market fit, if you're not embarrassed of what you've built, you've waited too long to show. So another question about like the, the when the company went out of business, I guess, was there any negative stigma you think looking for new jobs or was like that not a big deal? Or even like sometimes I feel like failure is positive here that you've worked at a failed startup is like a good thing. Honestly, I wouldn't want to tell someone to not take a risk on a company that you think is really exciting and interesting right. uh, because you're afraid that it's going to fail. I mean, that's kind of the game of startups. You have to be willing 
to take a chance. But that's not to say that it wasn't hard. It was actually pretty hard looking for a job, especially for the jobs that I applied for. Now, I ended up getting recruited to my current job, so I didn't actually even apply for it. So that was kind of, you know, an extra nice way to go into an interview. But for the jobs that I just cold applied for and going into an interview and telling them your experience and saying that you are most recently at a failed startup where you were running the product team, it's like actually a super hard sell. And um, it's not an impossible thing to overcome. And you're right. Like failure is sort of in a weird way, like fetishized around here. It's okay to to work for a company. Like it's it's always going to be difficult. It's like either like ending something that you put a lot of effort and energy into, and then it doesn't work out. It's always difficult. Yeah. Um, and like that was kind of like when we transitioned careers too. It's like in hindsight, it wasn't that bad, but at the time, it was like super painful. It yeah. Was really difficult. Yeah. And you go through that with all your peers at the same time, right? Like right. when when the company closed on that last day, it was really sad i bet because yeah. you put a lot of hard work into it and then when it comes to that end i'm sure it's super difficult yeah okay so then you moved on from there to cruise automation which uh i guess was acquired by where you started there but you yeah. want to maybe just tell us what the company does or what your job is cruise automation is self-driving car company um got acquired by gm a couple of years ago and I am working as a technical program manager there. Okay. So we're we're building autonomous ride sharing, I guess, as a service. And we are using the Chevy Bolt, which is one of GM's vehicles. And it's it's sort of dedicated for us as a as an autonomous vehicle. Right. What made you choose it or what? I mean, there's a lot of exciting things going on in mobility or transportation. Mm-hmm. Like what what brought you there or what what was what was exciting about going there? So actually, if I could just return to Lily for a second, you know, being in the robotics world and learning about everything that was going on with with um, autonomous driving was so interesting to me. And I actually had targeted, you know, as Lily was winding down, wanting to move into an autonomous driving startup. Really? Okay. Yeah. And so I, you know, was researching the space. It was a perfect opportunity at the perfect time. When a recruiter from the company reached out to me, what I see, like it might, it's exciting to working on it where you see there's so much investment and like competition and even like different approaches to, yeah. to doing it with like just camera based systems or, or LIDAR and other technologies that are required. It's just fascinating to watch this race to see, I don't know if there's going to be multiple winners in that category, but it's just fascinating to see so much competition. Oh yeah. Never a dull moment. I know you probably don't think too far into the future. But where, I don't know if it's a good question to ask you where you see yourself in five or 10 years in your career. I'm not one to have like a really rigid, like life plan. Oh, right. Because you had moved here without a job. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so. But no, I think from a career perspective, I would like to move into like a management type role or a role with, with more management yeah. than I'm currently doing, you know, in you know, I'd like to be running a team and influencing kind of the values and the way that a company operates. Like those are yep. things that I've come to really value and care a lot about working in the tech industry around here. I think I find that the similar thing exciting, like for me is because when you're working, you get the opportunity to influence the, like when you work with a company that's been around for a hundred years, like it's really hard to influence the culture or policies or other th- or values of the company. Totally. But most of these companies have been around for five to 10 years and they're really easy to 
to shape or to have your um, own input on them. All right. How about what in in her? This is this came. This question came from Jeremy, who works for Collab Software and uh, has his, so he has his own startup of about five or six people right now, and they're just getting started. But he said, "What are the three most important aspects of a su- successful startup?" Okay. So Jeremy, Jeremy, great question. I don't exactly think there's a recipe for success in in any case, but in my experience. I believe that having a laser focus is perhaps the most important thing to focus on. So, you know, as the CEO of your company, you should be able to answer for everybody at any given time. If someone asks you, how are we doing towards our main key metric? You should have an answer for them. Um, And everybody at your company should be able to answer that too. Right. So, um, and I would say the second thing is about having the right people on board. There's a few companies around here in in Silicon Valley that have different approaches to hiring and firing people. Um, one that I've learned about recently is how Netflix does it. If you're not a fit at Netflix, they let you go. Right. Um, and I, I forget the term they use for it, but they they pay you a very generous severance. Yeah. And instead of keeping you around and finding an opportunity for you at the company where you may be sort of you know, a lackluster employee, they give clear and direct feedback and they say, you know what, this role isn't right for you, but maybe there's other opportunities out there and they kind of be part ways and rip the bandaid off instead of keeping around a team member that maybe isn't performing or isn't, isn't kind of doing their right. best work. Okay, so going back to the first one you said was focus, focus and people. What yeah. do you think your third? Get the third right one? people on the bus, get the bus going in the right direction. Right. I would say the last one is about scrappiness. You know, no one's going to hand you success. Right. Right. Um, just being willing to cold call people, being willing to find resources and find scrappy ways to do things um, to actually, you know, bootstrap yourself to the next hurdle or milestone that you have to you know accomplish to keep your company alive right all right that's great great advice thanks for listening to the leap if you enjoyed the episode please share with your friends leave us a review on the apple podcast app and don't forget to subscribe thanks again for listening and we look forward to sharing the next episode soon